0: From UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Overinformed on Vegetable IPM. Mother's Day is this weekend, and this episode is all about moms, maggot moms, (laughs) more specifically onion maggot moms. Now, like most mothers, onion maggot moms want what is best for their children. My mother made sure I got a stellar education. She taught me to be a good friend and a hard worker. Onion maggot moms leave their children on onions. It doesn't sound like much, but thousands of years of evolution have taught her that leaving her kids on onions is the best thing that she can do for them. More on onion maggot biology later, but first, the basics. Onion maggot flies lay their eggs at the base of onions and related alliums like leeks, chives, and garlic. Larvae crawl inside the plant and feed on roots, often right at the soil level. Obviously, this feeding and the presence of maggots makes infested onions unmarketable. This feeding also encourages entry of fungal pathogens, which can ruin an onion bulb even if those larvae die, especially for bulbing onions that require longer storage life. Conventional chemical control is challenging because larvae are so well-protected. Best management focuses on protecting onion plants from egg-laying during peak flight times for adults. Onion maggot overwinters in the soil, so the first-generation flight occurs pretty early, usually late May or early June. A good rule of thumb is to look for flowering wild mustard, those bright yellow flowers in the landscape. Um, But you can also track growing degree days using the NUA website, that's neewa.cornell.edu, select the weather station nearest you, and pick growing degree days from the menu. Select a base temperature of 40 degrees. Peak flight for the first generation should be occurring around 735 growing degree days. You can use yellow sticky card traps to detect fly activity right in your onion fields, um, but these flies look so much like other flies. Monitoring using yellow sticky cards is a good way to determine when flies in general are active but probably not a good idea to judge pest pressure based on how many flies you see on these cards. Cabbage maggot adults look a lot like regular house flies, and they are almost indistinguishable from seed corn maggot and cabbage maggot adults. Also keep in mind that if you don't have a problem with onion maggot, and you you may not have a problem with onion maggot where you are, uh, a lot of this information in this episode holds true for cabbage maggot. These two species are very closely related, and cabbage maggot moms do pretty much the same thing that onion maggot moms do, except they have co-evolved with brassicas, and they leave their kids on cabbage instead of onions. Everybody has a different parenting style. So consult the New England Vegetable Guide for recommendations on how to protect your onions and brassicas from onion maggot and cabbage maggot, but... Remember, pesticides must be applied only as directed on the label to be in compliance with the law. So, read those labels every time. Ready to get over informed? First, let's take a step back in history and review the literature. As you would expect, most of the pertinent literature focuses on understanding adult behavior and oviposition or egg-laying behavior in particular. Onion maggot was first described by the number one fly enthusiast himself, Johann Meigen, in Germany in 1826. Onion maggot has been around for quite some time, and it's what we call a cosmopolitan species or one that is distributed throughout the world. Um, pretty much anywhere there's enough water to grow plants or enough water to grow onions. Um, as early as the 1920s, scientists understood that this insect's behavior could be manipulated with volatile chemicals. That's a fancy term for smells, odors. Um, by the late 70s, we understood that those sulfur-bearing chemicals, which give onions their, their oniony smell were particularly important for helping these insects in long-distance location of onion hosts. Um, Up to 100 meters would change the behavior of a fly in the presence of these odors. Um, Flies are more likely to fly upwind and perhaps a little faster with less turning when they smell an attractive odor like the oniony smell of their hosts. Work in the 80s found that you can lead an onion maggot to an onion with those sulfur compounds, but egg laying is only stimulated when plant odors work together with visual stimuli. By that, I mean the shape and color of an onion stem. This may be part of why later attempts to use behavior against onion maggot by diverting them from growing onions to cull piles didn't see great success. But a shout out to Rich Coles and his stimulo-deterrent diversion approach. This is a term I find superior to other behavioral control terms that are more widely adopted like trap crop or push-pull approaches. But I will leave that to another episode. Investigations in the 80s also helped us to understand estivation. That's summer diapause behavior. Pupae in the soil stopped developing unless soil temperatures are below 70 degrees. That's pretty cool. This would explain why we have such a problem with onion maggot during the spring But not so much during the summer, even though onion maggot has as many as three generations in the northeast Several investigators looked for natural enemies in the 80s Ground beetles were found to eat larvae if they could get to them So they're facing the same challenge that we see with chemical control with lab studies investigating the potential use of entomopathogenic fungi like Bavaria and metaresium found moderate infection rates, only about 20 to 50% infection rates. And those pathogens generally had more of an effect on pupation rates rather than larval mortality. So that was kind of a wash. Fast forward to the 90s, and you'll read about efforts where entomologists expose females to extracts of male paragonial glands. Essentially, they were trying to demonstrate that you could negatively affect female reproduction by exposing her to male hormones. Kind of like onion maggot birth control. This approach didn't exactly pan out, but the idea didn't go away. Uh, commercially available insect growth regulators can depress reproduction in this group. The secret is uh, how you get those females to expose themselves to it, so not a useful approach. In the 2000s, entomologists worked to understand the winter biology of onion maggot, including underground behavior. Uh, More recent work has brought more attempts at answering old questions, but with new tools. Um, So the transcriptome and the mitochondrial genome were published recently. Also, remember how the work done in the 80s investigating Bavaria, that entomopathogenic fungi, found surprisingly low infection rates considering how effective these pathogens can be in other systems? In a paper published this year, it looks like Onion Maggot had its associated microbiota to thank for repressed infections of Bavaria. Uh, Asian flies, and those are flies reared without their gut bugs, without their internal microbiota. Uh, They got sicker than flies with their normal complement of gut bugs. So (laughs) eat your yogurt (laughs) and uh, keep those gut bacteria happy and they'll do the same for you. Uh, For the most up-to-date information on managing onion maggot in commercial agriculture, I called someone who would know.
1: My name is Brian Nault. I'm a professor in the Department of Entomology at Cornell University located on the Cornell Agritech campus. Unfortunately, there's no germplasm that is known to have any onion maggot resistant qualities, so there hasn't been any advancements whatsoever in developing onion cultivars that are resistant to onion maggot. Um, Secondly, Uh, naturally occurring biological control doesn't seem to have much of an impact on onion maggot populations, or at least what we know so far. So those are two huge tactics that have been used in IPM that haven't really provided much help for managing onion maggot and onion. Crop rotation is one of the most effective ways for managing onion maggot and onions. Uh, Onion maggot isn't a very good flyer, therefore if you can plant onions half a mile or a mile away from where you had onions the previous year, you know, you can really significantly reduce the infestation. Um, But the problem is, even though that tactic works beautifully, it's non chemically based, it's just not logistically feasible for a majority of the onion growers. So that's very unfortunate. Um, delaying planting will significantly reduce damage by onion maggot as well in onion fields. Uh, In in this case you're escaping the maggot in time rather than in space like you do for crop rotation. But here's the, the, the rub on that is that the later you plant the later or the lower the onion maggot infestation but what happens anytime after about the mid to third week of May, uh, the later you plant seeds after that time, you're going to end up with a smaller bulb by harvest. And growers can't afford to have smaller bulbs at harvest. Most onion growers use an insecticide at planting as their main approach for managing this insect. Um, It's a prophylactic strategy, but not a bad one because the risk of infestation is extremely high. The value of the crop is extremely high. And if you don't use a protectant at planting and you have an infestation of onion maggot that kills the crop, there's not enough time to replant. There are situations that the information on the onion maggot activity that's on the NUA website can be very, very useful for growers that may be producing onions organically and don't have uh, prophylactic insecticide seed treatment options uh, or choose not to use them. In, In that case, by using that model, to predict onion maggot adult activity, one could potentially put a row cover or some other type of physical barrier over those onion plants at the time when the females are laying their eggs and then remove that row cover after the flight is over. So so that, that I think can be very, very effective. We are currently studying how abiotic factors may influence infestations of onion maggot in fields in New York. We've noticed that there are some areas where onion maggot damage can be extremely high and other areas where it's nearly non-existent. And growers in both areas are using the exact same pest management tactics. So we're wondering if things like excessive soil moisture um, or temperature in either the ambient temperature or soil temperature could somehow influence the levels of infestations. So we're, we're studying that currently. Uh, Erica Moretti and my program's looking into that. Uh, the, the other item that we're looking into is trying to understand the mechanism for how one of these particular control tactics works. And that is a, one of the seed treatments that includes a insecticide called spinosad. Um, spinosad is not known to be systemic, yet it is treated on onion seeds and provides excellent protection of that plant against maggots. But we don't know how it works. Uh, perhaps it is systemic, we don't know that it is, or it's not systemic and it's creating some deterrent level of deterrence of the onion maggot from the plant. Uh, we don't know what that mechanism is, but we're hoping to, to identify what it is so that we could better understand maybe how to use that product or how to maybe uh, develop new strategies for onion maggot based on repellents. This year we're going to begin a number of projects where we're going to look at the efficacy of entomopathogenic nematodes and entomopathogenic fungi for managing this insect. Unless we find one of these biological alternatives, I I don't see any um, budging of getting us off this pesticide treadmill.
0: Well, that is it for this week. I hope you got sufficiently over-informed. Very special thanks to Dr. Brian Nolk uh, from Cornell University and a very special thanks to Brentwood's favorite son Jason Lightbound who wrote and performed our theme music Overinformed informed on IPM is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the planet state. Learn more at extension.unh.edu. ...building off each other, and I remember you saying, there's only a few reasons people don't get tenure here. Number one, they wouldn't get in the pipe. (laughs) (laughs) They wouldn't get in the (laughs) pipe. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my God, I laughed so hard. That poor woman. And then she didn't come after all that. We showed her a great time.
1: I know. I know. I, I agree. That was probably one of the best dinners that we have ever had. <laughs>